ships such a meager wage and mother jones can't help us now anyway Welcome to part two of the Battle of Blair Mountain at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Blair Mountain, West Virginia, the scene of the bloodiest Union battle ever to take place in the U.S. as more than 10,000 West Virginia coal miners put down their Bibles and picked up their guns to defend their rights as workers and human beings and save their families from starvation. In part one, we set the stage for the conflict between the coal mine operators and the coal miners in West Virginia a conflict that began to escalate at the beginning of the 20th century from 1902 onward and reached a climax in 1921. The coal companies owned the mines and the property surrounding them. They hired men and boys to work the mines, paying them in scrip, worthless anywhere else, but money which the families used to pay their rent on flimsy little shanties, to buy their food, to pay for protection, and buy clothing at the general store. All this cost more than their script was worth, so they remained in debt permanently. They had no rights. Children died of sickness and starvation. The mining companies and their investors, often local politicians, profited immensely. The coal companies paid town sheriffs, politicians, outside agencies such as Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, and their hired guns, and hard cases picked up off the streets of Charleston to insure against outside unions or miners that got out of hand. The Outside Miners' Union, called the UMWA, or United Mine Workers of America, was making inroads nationwide in places like Colorado and Pennsylvania, and often using the services of an 80-year-old woman named Mother Jones, who had enough spunk and energy to handle all kinds of tough situations, and did. She was also less likely to get shot due to her age and gender, which was her biggest asset. She was, however, jailed frequently, and always illegally, to keep her from inciting the miners to strike and organizing them in the Union. The fact that she was being imprisoned illegally was overlooked by judges and representatives of the law, as most of them supported the coal companies. Mother Jones was no pushover, however, and had contacts in Washington, D.C., as we learned in Part 1. People who could make law. That was a slow process, however, and law came to places like Logan and Mindo Counties, West Virginia, often too late and too little. In part one, we outlined the living conditions of the miners and told much of the story from the point of view and autobiography of Mother Jones, which gives a good first-hand account of what was going on in the West Virginia coal communities in Logan County between 1902 and 1923. We ended with her plea to the miners to arm themselves because a fight was coming. And now we begin with the bloodshed that escalated into a full-scale war in West Virginia. The name Baldwin Feltz had struck terror and hatred into the hearts of the poor and starving families in southwestern West Virginia, close to the border of Kentucky. But after the big strike in 1912, the men went back to non-union work, and life continued on. On May 19, 1920, Nearly 10,000 miners in that part of West Virginia went on strike again, but their protests were, for the most part, ignored. The mine operators responded by calling in the notorious Baldwin Fells Detective Agency again to break up the strike. They had come before, 10 years ago, and killed some miners, and displaced families from their homes, and generally terrorized women and children while their fathers and husbands worked. This time in 1920, it began when 12 Baldwin Feltz agents, all armed and ready for bear, reported to leader Albert Feltz, who had been sent to the area earlier by his brother Thomas Feltz, who was the co-owner of the Feltz agency. Albert had been busy in Logan County, in the company cold town of Matewan, Matewan spelled M-A-T-E-W-A-N, busy trying to bribe Mayor Testerman, 
offering him $500 if he would allow the agency to place machine guns on the roofs in the town. But Testerman refused. Intending to start trouble, and somewhat offset by the mayor's refusal, Albert and Lee, his brother, and 11 armed agents headed for the Stone Mountain Coal Company property. The first thing they did, to be sure they were noticed, was evict a woman and her children from their shanty, the husband being at work underground, as all of them were, forcing the family out of the house at gunpoint, then throwing their belongings on the dirt road in the rain. There were some miners who saw it all take place, and they were furious. They went to round up the town police chief, Sid Hatfield. As the agents walked toward the train station to leave town, Chief Hatfield and a group of now-deputized miners confronted them and told them they were under arrest. Albert Feltz responded, No, Sheriff, in fact, you're under arrest, and here's the warrant. At that point, the mayor, Testerman, who at this point had seen the confrontation, approached, demanding to see the summons. He shouted, This summons is bogus, at which time Albert Feltz drew his weapon, shooting Testerman. Sheriff Hartfield and his deputies fired back, then backed into the chamber's hardware store, as gunfire erupted everywhere. Albert Feltz, Lee Feltz, and five of their agents were shot down, along with three of the deputized miners. Bodies were writhing in the street, and men were shouting for doctors, while an acrid-smelling pall of gunsmoke filled the air in the little town of Matewan. The newspaper headlines reacted with headlines such as Bloodshed Range in the Virginia Hills, as stories of what became called the Matewan Massacre flooded the state, and soon, national papers. The symbolism of what all this meant wasn't lost to either side. The coal miners had stood up to Baldwin Feltz and the company. The company had to crush them at all costs before this spread. Sid Hatfield, the sheriff of Matewan, became an overnight legend and hero to the miners, and a symbol of hope that the coal companies would see the light and offer better terms and living conditions. But the coal operators didn't see any light. They only saw red. Throughout that summer and fall of 1920, the union gained members in Logan and Mingo counties, and the coal operators hired more guns. Low-intensity warfare was taking place all up and down the Tug River, that same river that divided the Hatfields and the McCoys for decades during their notorious family feud. And, of course, Hatfields were involved in this conflict as well. More than one, as you'll see soon, and on both sides. Throw a brick anywhere in West Virginia, and you were likely to hit a Hatfield. And since I know you're thinking it, I'll answer it. Sid and old devil ants were related. I'll tell you just how closely in a minute. In late June of 1920, state police under the command of Captain Brokus raided the Lick Creek tent colony near Williamson. These people didn't even have shanties. They'd been kicked out, and now they lived in tents. And as the police tell it, they, the police, were fired upon by miners from the tent colony. So they shot back, killing miners and arresting those who were rounded up. Then they ripped the canvas tents to shreds and scattered all the family belongings. Things were heating up. Both sides were gathering for a fight when Sid Hatfield then turned the mayor's store, called Testerman's, into an armory and gun shop. Hatfield was a fighter and friend to the miners. He was born in Blackberry, Pike County, Kentucky, the tenth of twelve children, of Jacob Hatfield, a tenant farmer, and his wife, Rebecca Crabtree. Hatfield's grandfather, Jeremiah Hatfield, was a half-brother to Valentine Hatfield, grandfather of William Anderson Devil Ants Hatfield, leader of the Hatfield family involved in the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud. As a child, Hatfield worked on his father's farm. He became a miner in his teens and then worked as a blacksmith for several years. He received his nickname Smile and Sid because of the gold caps on several of his upper teeth. He seems to have had a reputation for hard living and fighting, and his appointment in 1919 to the post of police chief of Matewan by the mayor, Cabell Cornelius Testerman, surprised some of the more respectable townsfolk. However, he was a staunch supporter of the UMWA, as was Testerman. Together, they were instrumental, as you've been hearing, in leading the mining community's resistance to the Baldwin Feltz thugs. On June 2, 1920, in Huntington, Hatfield married Jessie Lee Maynard, the widowed second wife of Testerman, who had been mortally wounded in the battle. The speed of the marriage, just months after Testerman's death, 
led to an attempt at arrest and accusations by Thomas Feltz and the Baldwin Feltz spy, Charles Everett Lively. That Hatfield, and not Albert Feltz, had shot the mayor because of his desire for Jesse. However, according to Jesse, her first husband, aware of the danger of their situation, had asked that his friend take care of her and their young son, Jackson, should he be killed. The battle had given Hatfield a degree of celebrity. He appeared in a short film, Smile and Sid, for the UMWA, and was photographed with other UMWA activists, including Mary Harris, Mother Jones. However, he was aware that his life was in danger from Feltz, who sought vengeance for his brothers, Albert and Lee. Hatfield was indicted on murder charges stemming from the Mate Wan shootout, but was later acquitted by the jury. He was sent, however, to stand trial with his friend and deputy, Edward Chambers, on conspiracy charges for another incident in Welch, West Virginia. The conspiracy charges were based on an incident in Mohawk, West Virginia, located in McDowell County, near the border of Mingo County. The mining camp of Mohawk was shot up, and according to the local mine guards, the perpetrators were Mingo County strikers led by Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, intending to force the Mohawk miners to unionize. According to C.E. Lively's secret testimony, the one that led to Hatfield's indictment, Lively, who owned a restaurant in Maitwan and was very friendly with the miners and the union, had persuaded miners in his restaurant, as well as Hatfield and Chambers, to do something drastic. He encouraged the miners to arm themselves and shoot up the non-union temple at Mohawk. At this location, the mine guards had a reception committee waiting for them, with bloodhounds and machine guns, while Lively made himself busy on the telephone. The union leaders, on the other hand, argued that the shooting was done by McDowell County mine guards and that they were attempting to falsely accuse Hatfield and Chambers of the offense in order to ambush them in McDowell County. It was all a set designed to get Hatfield out in the open outside of Logan County so they could kill him. At the assurances of McDowell County Sheriff Bill Hatfield, Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers were told that they would have the fullest protection of the sheriff's office when he showed up in court in McDowell County. The day before the shooting, however, Sheriff Bill Hatfield left the county for Craig Healing Springs in Virginia. He had obviously sold out to the mining company and Feltz, betraying his own family. But speak not ill of the dead, it only looks that way. Both men, Sid Hatfield and his friend Ed Chambers, arrived in Welch on August 1, 1921, unarmed and accompanied by their wives. Several Baldwin Feltz men shot them on the McDowell County Courthouse steps in broad daylight. Hit in the arm and three or four times in the chest, Hatfield died instantly. Chambers was shot several more times as his wife tried to defend him and finished off with a bullet in the head by Charles Everett Lively, the Baldwin Feltz spy whose false testimony got the indictment against Sid Hatfield. Chambers' widow would later testify to Lively's cold-blooded headshot at a fixed trial in which Lively and his two murderous accomplices were declared innocent of any wrongdoing. None of the Baldwin's Feltz detectives were ever convicted of Hatfield's assassination. They claimed he had acted in self-defense. There was no law or justice in West Virginia in 1921, less than 100 years ago in America. There was an outpouring of grief for the fallen local heroes at the funeral, which was attended by at least 3,000 people and conducted with full honors from the Oddfellows, Knights of Pythias, and Redmond. Director John Sayles' Academy Award-nominated 1987 film Matewan starred David Strathairn in the role of Hatfield. I highly recommend you catch it. Hatfield's and Chambers' bodies were returned to Matewan, and word of the slains spread through the mountains. The miners were angry at the way Hatfield had been slain, and that it appeared the assassins would escape punishment. They began to pour out of the mountains and take up arms. Miners along the Little Coal River were among the first to militarize, and began actions such as patrolling and guarding the area. Sheriff Don Chafin sent Logan County troopers to the Little Coal River area, where armed miners captured the troopers, disarmed them, and sent them fleeing. Chafin, a coal company puppet who had replaced Sid Hatfield, would do his best in the coming days to crush the miners. On August 7, 1921, the leaders of the UMWA, District 17, which encompasses much of southern West Virginia, 
called a rally at the state capitol in Charleston. These leaders were Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney, who were veterans of previous mine conflicts in the region. Both were local, well-read, and articulate. Keeney and Mooney met with Governor Ephraim Morgan and presented him with a petition of the miners' demands. When Morgan summarily rejected the demands, the miners became more restless and began to talk of a march on Mingo to free the confined miners, end martial law, and organize the county. But Blair Mountain, Logan County, and Sheriff Chafin stood directly in their path. We're soldiers of the Great War Don't seem right to treat a man Like a dog just to make a dime rally on August 7th, Mary Harris' Mother Jones reviled the governor for not acting to help the miners and called the miners to march into Logan and Mingo counties and set up the union by force. In Logan County, this would mean crushing the power of Sheriff Don Chafin, who was getting paid by the coal companies as well as the county. He had a heavily armed force of 300 deputies whose purpose it was to watch all incoming roads and railroads and prevent rallies from taking place. Anyone who looked suspicious was jailed without recourse and many others disappeared, most likely shot, killed, and buried. At a rally in Charleston on August 7th, as we heard in Part 1 in Mother Jones' autobiography, she called for the miners to lynch Sheriff Chafin and reestablish the Union. She and Union leader Frank Keeney debated over whether or not to urge the men on or call it off. If this march was successful, the Unions would be welcomed in every corner of the state. If it failed... The Union might lose the entire state, and other states as well. There was a lot at stake. 1,500 armed men began gathering at Lens Creek Mountain near Marmot in Kanawha County on August 20, 1921. Reporters gathered as well, but both men were sworn to secrecy. The Charleston Gazette reported that the miners were preparing to invade Logan County, but no one in authority could be found to validate the rumors. Residents of Charleston were thrown into a panic by rumors that the miners, now only 10 miles from the city, were going to attack. By the 23rd of August, an estimated 13,000 had gathered and began marching toward Logan County. On that night, the 23rd, Mother Jones unexpectedly reversed her position and urged them to disband and go home. She must have felt that they were marching to a slaughter. Sheriff Chafin escaped the noose intended for him and was busy setting up gun emplacements on Blair Mountain, knowing that was directly in the path of the miners' destination. Gatling guns, 50 caliber machine guns, and fortified pits were put in place. Anything coming up that mountain was going to eat lead. On the night of August 24th, somewhere between eight and 13,000 men started up Lens Creek toward Logan County, 65 miles away. When the news of the approaching force reached Logan early the next morning, alarms began to sound. Sheriff Chafin rushed his men up the mountain to man the fortifications and called out every able-bodied man to assist the deputies. He now controlled a force of 2,000 men, all well-armed, thanks to the coal operator's hefty profits. Impatient to get to the fighting, another group of miners near St. Albans in Kanawha County commandeered a Chesapeake and Ohio freight train renamed by the miners the Blue Steel Special, to meet up with the advanced column of marchers at Danville in Boone County on their way to the battle. During this time, Keeney and Mooney fled to Ohio, while the fiery Bill Blizzard assumed quasi-leadership of the miners. The first skirmishes occurred on the morning of August 25th, while the bulk of the miners were still 15 miles away. The following day, President Warren Harding threatened to send in federal troops and Billy Mitchell with an airborne task force of Army Martin MB-1 bombers. 
Billy Mitchell had long been advocating the use of planes to drop bombs, and now the U.S. military was getting their chance. After a long meeting in Madison, the seat of Boone County, the miners were convinced to return home. But as it turns out, the struggle was far from being over. After spending days assembling his private army, Chafin would not be denied his battle to end Union attempts at organizing Logan County coal mines. Within hours of the Madison decision, rumors abounded that Chafin's men had shot Union sympathizers in the town of Sharples, just north of Blair Mountain, and that families had been caught in the crossfire during the skirmishes. Infuriated, the miners grabbed their guns, turned back toward Blair Mountain, many traveling in other stolen and commandeered trains. What had happened here was that Sheriff Chafin and Captain Brokus, head of the Logan State Police, had taken a contingent of 200 men to the town of Mifflin, near Sharples, and arrested some miners, hoping to stir up trouble. As Chafin and Brokus moved out of the area back toward Blair Mountain, along Beach Creek in the darkness, they were surprised at Monclo by Union men, and a three-hour gun battle broke out that left two miners killed and one wounded. The miners managed to capture a Logan County Justice of the Peace, his brother Mitchell, and two deputies. A woman named Maggie Holt, aged 93, later testified how she and her children had laid low on the floor of their house in Monclo as bullets ripped through the walls and windows. The main group of marchers was strung out in a long line, a straggling, unorganized line consisting of old grizzled men and eager young men, carrying every type of firearm, from old flintlocks to machine guns. Some carried banners which read, On to Mingo, which is that county in southwest Virginia closest to Kentucky, and almost all wear red bandanas to signify their union membership. They called themselves Rednecks, and many locals there still call Blair Mountain the Redneck War. By August 29th, battle was fully joined. Blair Mountain was now the scene of a raging battle. Chafin's men, though outnumbered, had the advantage of higher positions and better weaponry. Private planes were hired to drop homemade bombs on the miners. Billy Mitchell didn't get the chance to drop any, but his planes were used just a few days later for aerial surveillance. A combination of gas and explosive bombs left over from World War I were dropped in several locations near the towns of Jeffrey, Sharples, and Blair. At least one did not explode and was recovered by the miners. It was used months later to great effect during the treason and murder trials, which we'll get to soon. On orders from General Billy Mitchell, Army bombers from Maryland were also used for aerial surveillance. One Martin bomber crashed on its return flight, killing the three crew members. All this taking place in America roughly 100 years ago in an effort to help the coal companies maintain an iron hold over their workers and prevent the spread of unions. You can argue about the purpose of unions today, but back then, it's easy to see why they were needed. It's important to note where we were in history at that time and how people viewed the unions. There was a great deal of public fear of unions and of this strike. The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and surrounding countries, which had occurred in 1917, during which the labor class rose up under the banner of socialism and forcefully took over companies and merchants, as well as the brutal murder of ruling families, the Romanovs being a prime example, had woken millions to the reality of class struggle in industrialized countries worldwide. Now in West Virginia, the Union uprisings were being explained to the public in national headlines that read, Report, More Die in Logan Fight, Invaders Advance Line. Note the use of the word invaders. This characterization, and one similar to this, illustrate how this Union battle was being portrayed. Not as a fight for the rights to be treated fairly, but as an uprising by thousands of armed men intent upon taking over towns and cities and, assumedly, privately owned businesses. And since all the authorities were standing up against them, they had to be evil. And that's how they were portrayed. There was very little pity to be had for a dead miner or his family, especially if he had picked up a gun during this revolt. And anyone in the position of being able to spread this fear of a Bolshevik uprising through media channels jumped on the opportunity. This waging a media war against the hapless miners, as well as a shooting war. Union organizers were called thugs and Bolshevik agents. Miners were called invaders. Anybody trying to stop them was called a hero. 
On August 30th, Governor Morgan appointed Colonel William Eubanks of the West Virginia National Guard to command the government and volunteer forces confronting the miners. Sporadic gun battles continued for a week, with the miners at one time nearly breaking through to the town of Logan and their target destinations, the non-unionized counties to the south, Logan and Mingo. Up to 30 deaths were reported by Chafin's side and 50 to 100 on the Union miners' side, with hundreds more injured or wounded. Chafin's forces consisted of 90 men from Bluefield, West Virginia, 40 from Huntington, West Virginia, and about 120 from the West Virginia State Police. That same day, August 30, 1921, President Warren Harding issued a proclamation commanding all insurgents to, quote, disperse and retire peacefully to their respective homes by 12 noon, the first day of September, and hereafter abandon said confirmations and submit themselves to the laws and constituted authorities, end quote. If they didn't disband, he would send in federal troops. The marchers refused to lay down their arms, knowing blood had been shed, and knowing without a doubt that the authorities, the same men who supported the mine owners, who had been paying thugs to murder and harass them, would act with a vengeance while the law turned a blind eye. That's a rough situation to be in, one-sided justice. It makes me think of the symbol they've used for years for justice. A woman with a blindfold over her eyes, holding a scale in front of her, presumably with no bias, no malice, no investment on either side, about to deliver a fair verdict. Ball, we know better. Sheriff Chapin's jail was getting overcrowded, so he offered freedom if the men would fight for his side. One prisoner, a bricklayer, was ordered to take a rifle and go kill miners. He refused. According to one witness, he was shot and killed as an example to the others. A few words in the Logan Banner the next day said he'd been shot trying to escape. The miners had amassed their strength by Craddock Fork of Hewitt Creek near the town of Lake and thought they were about to break over the mountain into Crooked Creek, which leads directly into the town of Logan. If they could break through, the law would have a tough time stopping them. So Sheriff Chafin decided to do what the Army would not do, bomb them. And he hired private pilots at $100 a day to fly over the lines of miners and drop bombs made out of 4-6 to six inch oil well casings. Most of these were dropped over Hewitt Creek and fortunately failed to explode. One which did go off was aimed at a one-room schoolhouse that the miners were using as a hospital on Graddock Fork near the town of Lake. The bomb missed the school by about 100 yards and exploded in a nearby field, leaving a crater large enough to hold a wheelbarrow. Major newspapers were sending in reporters and correspondents, one of whom had served in World War I, and wrote that the scene of refugees fleeing from the battle area into Boone County reminded him of Belgium. Boyden Sparks, a famous war correspondent for the New York Tribune, was dispatched to the scene with a woman reporter, her mission being to report human interest stories. Chris Holt, who was 15 at the time, remembered loading the two reporters into his father's car and driving them to the front lines, where he left them. While attempting to reach the Logan lines, the pair was shot at, and Sparks took one through the leg. The deputies took them back to the town, figuring they were a threat, and rounded up Chris Holt so he could ID them, which he did. During this time, special trains carrying food and ammunition provided by the UMWA were arriving on the miners' side of the battle lines, and guerrilla warfare was continuous through the heavy foliage of the hills, valleys, and creeks that all combined to form Blair Mountain. Wounded and dead were arriving at makeshift hospitals, usually schools and churches temporarily converted for medical use. The dead, many unnamed and unidentified, were carried out on trains, and there's never been an accurate count given as to how many miners were lost. Even though Chapin's men were outnumbered, they had the advantage of higher ground, better weapons, and organized command. The miners, led by Bill Blizzard, were at times disorganized and strung out along a long battle line. Archaeologists have examined the areas where battle lines were committed and found that the miners, many of whom were World War I vets, held their own pretty well and fought against an entrenched force as well as could be expected. There had to have been a lot of doubt in their minds as to what would become of all this had they broken through. Think about it. Would they put all the state police and local authorities in jail? Hang them? Try them? Where were they going to get a judge? And then what? There was no real winning in this battle for them. 
the feds would sweep in sooner or later, arrest or kill them all, and nothing would have been achieved. When President Harding's orders to disband were disobeyed, he ordered in federal troops to be sent in from Kentucky, Ohio, and New Jersey. He also ordered a squadron of planes from Langley Field of Virginia, armed with bombs and machine guns. But these were never used, as the war broke up before they arrived, and the only use they were put to was aerial reconnaissance. But just the ordering of planes and bombs made for good headlines. When federal troops arrived in Charleston, they found the streets lined with flags and cheering civilians. Then the soldiers were loaded in boxcars and sent toward the front. The troops arrived in Madison that night and were met by Bill Blizzard. He was ordered to call a ceasefire and send the miners home. He soon left, but by the next morning, September 3rd, miners were seen coming out of the hills unarmed and with no red scarves visible. Blizzard had ordered them to surrender. Behind them, in caves, under leaves and rocks, remained their rifles and ammunition, which they had been ordered to leave behind, to prevent them from being shot, and to send the signal that the fight was over. The Union had suffered a crushing defeat. As expected, a grand jury was summoned in Logan County, and one-sided justice was meted out to the desperate men, with indictments handed down to against Frank Keeney, Fred Mooney, Bill Blizzard, and 982 others, charging them with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. The roundup of prisoners began in three counties, and hundreds were arrested and taken to Logan, where beatings soon began as Sheriff Chafin, representing justice in Logan County, attempted to get confessions out of them. The trial for treason was planned for the courthouse in Jefferson County, where John Brown had been tried for treason, in an obvious attempt to tie the actions of the miners to those of John Brown. John Brown was an abolitionist who, in an attempt to foment a slave revolt, attacked a federal armory in an effort to get the weapons needed to carry out the revolt. He was hung, and there was no doubt that the mining companies and the law in Logan County was hoping for similar results for the Union miners. By September 2nd, federal troops arrived. The 1922 treason trial of labor leader Bill Blizzard followed the 1921 Miners' March and the resulting Battle of Blair Mountain. At the time of the battle, Blizzard was president of United Mine Workers District 17, Subdistrict 2, based in St. Albans. The members of the subdistrict were known for their belligerence toward both company and UMW officials, and some observers, including the activist Mother Jones, believed Blizzard's incendiary character would escalate the conflict. District 17 leaders Fred Mooney and Frank Keeney left the state during the battle in order to avoid arrest, but Blizzard remained. He played a decisive role in convincing the marchers to surrender once federal troops appeared upon the scene. The state accused several Union leaders, including Blizzard, and many of the marchers with treason against the state of West Virginia, and other charges, interpreting the miners' armed march as an insurrection against the state. Prosecution and defense attorneys agreed to move the trials to Charlestown in Jefferson County, in the eastern panhandle and far from the coal fields. Coal company attorneys composed the prosecution team. Thomas Townsend, former Kanawha County prosecuting attorney, led the defense. The prosecution chose to try Blizzard first, believing that the state of West Virginia versus William Blizzard was the strongest of the treason cases. The trial centered on a discussion of Blizzard's location during the movement toward Blair Mountain. Prosecution witnesses claimed that Blizzard had shadowed the marchers, periodically requesting reports and issuing orders. The defense presented witnesses claiming that Blizzard had remained in Charleston during the crisis. Questions about the reliability of some prosecution witnesses, as well as Blizzard's role in convincing the miners to lay down their arms, led the jury to acquit him on the evening of May 27, 1922. In a June 21, 2000 article in the Appalachian, titled, Baseball and Rebellion, The Treason Trial of Bill Blizzard, the article reads, Nothing matches it in the history of baseball if the visiting player's lineup is any clue. Bill Blizzard, right field, treason, murder. Cecil Sullivan, first base, murder. Oki Burgess, second base, murder. W. Lacey, third base, treason. Oki Johnson, pitcher, treason. Joe Rhodes, shortstop, murder. A.C. McCormick, left field, murder. 
Dewey Bailey, center field, treason, and Frank Stupp, catcher, murder. The team played in April and May of 1922, and the fans munching popcorn and watching the action in Charlestown, West Virginia, knew that these were not minor leaguers playing for small stakes. In fact, the visiting players were union organizers, released on bail, who had been indicted for their roles in the Battle of Blair Mountain. An unknown number of men, sometimes estimated at 30, had been killed in the uprising when the coal companies fought the miners in 1921. Now, 200 miners were in Charlestown for trial. No one from the coal companies had faced similar indictments. The coal companies demanded the death penalty for their opponents, and the state of West Virginia had been more than obliging. In fact, coal company lawyers had been allowed to prosecute the case on behalf of the state. Even the indictments had been written in the law offices of the coal companies. The companies assumed they could convince a Jefferson County jury that the Union men were desperate traitors. At a time of national hysteria about the Bolshevik threat, a treason and murder trial against admitted insurrectionists must have seemed like an easy dinger, and maybe even a grand slam. They would legally execute dozens, jail thousands, and crush organized labor once and for all. But the companies had made a serious mistake. Between court sessions, they were entertaining themselves at a swank, out-of-town hotel. The accused union members, meanwhile, were playing baseball with the citizens of that town, the very people whose friends and neighbors were sitting on the jury. History hinges on moments like this, the article reads. The trial had begun with a change of venue from Logan County, where the Battle of Blair Mountain was fought, to Jefferson County, near Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Once the location was set, union organizers approached the businessmen's associations, hotels, and private citizens for help sheltering the 200 miners and their families headed for Charlestown. When they arrived at the train station wearing pink lapel ribbons identifying them as UMWA defendants, a cheering crowd marched them to the fire station's public hall. In the lead role, Bill Blizzard, a handsome young man with a lovely spouse and two children along for the trial, maintained a cheerful attitude, as if he were not facing the gallows. Blizzard's son and biographer, William C. Blizzard, wrote in the recently published book, When Miners March. The miners were out to make friends, and they passed up few opportunities. The citizens of Charlestown learned that these supposed revolutionists were, after all, not very different from themselves. They organized a baseball team, and they made a point of attending church with their families in the town. The miners were good at baseball, Blizzard wrote, but they were careful not to win too many games against the Charlestown citizens. And when they did win, the proceeds from the game were donated to a hospital fund. The first trial brought two dozen of the UMWA organizers into court, and Blizzard was named as the lead defendant. His union attorneys faced prejudice from the first, as the coal companies were allowed to keep secret their evidence and witness list. Blizzard's attorneys also protested the fact that groups of well-armed coal company gunmen were present in the courtroom. The first prosecution witness, State Governor Ephraim Morgan, did little to help the coal companies. He admitted, as one newspaper wrote, that a private government whose army consists of the notorious mine guards exists in this state. And although opposed to it, he, the governor, was powerless to end it. Within a few days, people began to sense that the state of West Virginia, rather than the miners, was on trial. It looks as if the entire machinery of government has been turned over to the coal operators, another newspaper wrote as they began to see the light. While the coal companies tried to tie Blizzard and the organizers directly to the military action that took place on Blair Mountain, a principal witness was undermined when it turned out he was being paid by the coal companies. At one point in the trial, the prosecutor brought out a set of Springfield rifles to demonstrate the firepower of the miners. To show what the miners were up against, union lawyers brought out a diabolically constructed bomb dropped on the miners from a biplane. To boost the drama, the union asked experts to take it apart right there in the courtroom. Day by day, Sunday by Sunday, and game by game, the jury and townsfolk began to see through the prosecution's portrait of the men as traitors who deserved execution. How could it be treason if they fought a company and not the state? Did the state belong to the coal companies? 
As the trial went on, baseball and church continued to bring miners and residents together. And as the coal industry's case fell apart, the people of Charlestown increasingly took the miners' side. Near the end of the trial, Blizzard's wife was seen entering the courtroom arm-in-arm with a jury member's wife. On May 27, 1922, Bill Blizzard and fellow defendants were acquitted. Cheers resounded throughout the courtroom, wrote William C. Blizzard. Blizzard's mother, wife, and children clung to his neck, while the young defendant, all smiles, shook hands with friends until his hands were sore. In the end, no one was executed, but not all the other miners were acquitted. Some were sentenced to jail terms, but nearly all were paroled by 1925. And it wasn't all smooth sailing for the UMWA afterwards. Union membership dropped drastically in the 1920s, to the point where some historians maintain that the coal companies won the Battle of Blair Mountain. Wes Harris, publisher of When Miners March, disagrees. That's just a lot of hogwash, Harris said. If anything, Blair Mountain was a victory. The twin events of Blair Mountain and the trials at Charlestown were the furnaces that forged the miners' steel that got them ready for the 1930s. By then, labor laws began to protect labor organizers. Unions struggle and lose, then struggle and win, William C. Blizzard wrote. What people needed to understand was that there's always been something wrong with an industry that produced a mint of wealth and forced its employees to live in poverty. Blizzard's trial was the first in a series of related trials arising from the Battle of Blair Mountain. Miner John Wilburn and his two sons were tried next and found guilty of second-degree murder. Cabin Creek miner Walter Allen was then convicted of treason. The judge ordered that Frank Keeney's trial be moved to Morgan County, where Keeney was cleared of the treason charged against him. The Charlestown treason trials in the same courthouse where John Brown had been tried and condemned depleted District 17's treasury and crippled the organization for years to come. The United Mine Workers later supported Townsend, a Republican, in his failed 1932 run for governor, contributing to the Depressionary schism in the Democrat Party. In 2010, 88 years after the Battle of Blair Mountain, the people of West Virginia found them fighting the coal companies again at Blair Mountain. And the latest headline, June 27, 2018, reads, This battle to preserve Blair Mountain as an historic site lasted for years. Blair Mountain has long been under the threat of mountaintop removal mining, a devastating form of coal removal that destroys entire ecosystems as it extracts its layers of fuel. In 2009, after years of effort on the part of non-governmental organizations like Sierra Club and the Friends of Blair Mountain, the site was listed on the National Register. But within months, the state's powerful coal interests, from the state senate to the offices of such large extraction companies as Massey Energy and National Resource Partners, launched an all-out and ultimately successful campaign to have the battlefield removed from the Register of Historic Sites. It would take another seven years of appeals for the federal government to review the removal, at which time a district court judge determined the delisting to be arbitrary and capricious. However, lacking the power to order the site relisted, he referred it back to the keeper of the National Register for a final determination. Paul Lothar, who held the keeper's position until recently, spared neither effort nor expense in researching the delisting decision. His office finally determined that the delisting should be invalidated due to the irregularities that had occurred, including that the names of deceased residents had been submitted as objectors. Some names of objectors were submitted multiple times, and real estate company stockholders who were not property owners had submitted objections. The fight went back and forth for years, the coal companies fighting to keep Blair Mountain off the historic register and concerned organizations fighting to put it back on there. The good news and the news that inspired this story just arrived in the form of this headline. The site of the Blair Mountain Rebellion is safe. This dated June 27, 2018. After more than nine years of highly contentious and emotionally charged debate, West Virginia's Blair Mountain Battlefield, the site of the nation's greatest labor rebellion and the largest armed uprising since the Civil War, has been relisted on the National Register of Historic Places. The next time you pass through West Virginia, 
remember to stop at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. The museum is located at 336 Mate Street in Matewan, in a building that still bears the scars of bullet holes from the Matewan Massacre shootout. Its offerings include exhibits about cold camp life, the Paint Creek Cabin Creek Strike of 1912-1913, the Matewan Massacre, the Miners' March, and the Battle of Blair Mountain. Housing the largest exhibited collection of Mine Wars era artifacts, oral histories, digitized film reels, maps, and historic photos, the museum simulates the journey that many mining families took as they organized together for their rights. And when you come to that area, don't be looking for me to be wearing a red bandana, carrying the latest copy of Mother Jones magazine, and driving a beat-up truck with Peace at All Costs, Progressive Forever, and Save the Great White Shark decals. But often these groups do get it right, and Blair Mountain's need for historic preservation was right then, and it's right now, just as it's never too late to tell the story of Mother Jones and the Battle of Blair Mountain to new listeners. The moral of the story being to fully understand both sides before you choose one. In politics and life and business, that knowledge can do great things for you. A big thank you to all the men and women and organizations who fought in and out of courtrooms and state halls for years to make Blair Mountain's preservation finally happen. What a success story. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Be sure to catch our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days, all of which offer you different windows to history and a full palette of entertainment. We offer links to all our shows in the show notes here, and people are signing in at our new Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you very much for your support. We ask each of you to take a few minutes of your time and a few dollars a month and support our shows. We greatly appreciate your help. And reviews for 1001 Heroes. These come mostly through Apple Podcast app. Here are some recent ones. Your taking the few minutes to write a review means a tremendous amount to us. So thank you ahead of time for doing that. This one, Great Podcast for Anyone by PVS2. I was on the hunt for a good podcast when driving to work and when I take my dog on a walk and I found it with this one. The stories are interesting and vary across many subjects. Some of the events I know about and ended up learning new things about them. If you want an entertaining pool of topics that will keep you waiting to see what might come next, this is the place. Five stars. And this one, Great Shows, Five Stars by Thad67. Just listen to The Quick and the Dead, Part 1. Great show. I love to listen to all your shows. You do a great job. And this one, by Bath the Great. Yes, yes, rating five stars. Really liked your information on the pods. This one enjoyed recently. Declassified Conspiracies interview was really awesome. And this one by Toon Talker, among the very, very best podcasts. Each of the 1001 shows is a top-notch production. Family-friendly, well-researched, and professionally produced. These podcasts are always informative and entertaining. Get them all now and stop wondering where the great entertainment is. And this one, one star from No TV. Astoundingly Christian supremacist. Listen to the end of the Malta episode, and you'll know what I mean. I can't believe the hostile attitude made it into a widely listened to piece of media in this here, comma, the 21st century. <laughs> All I can say is, the Christians won that battle, and I was happy about it. And this one, very interesting, five stars by Humble Mama. My new favorite is Mother Jones. Looking forward to the next one. And here it comes. Thank you so much, all of you, for taking the time to send us reviews. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.
for living in shanty towns. We ain't got no say. Fourteen-hour shifts, such a meager wage, and Mother Jones can't help us now anyway. A big thanks to Louise Mosery for her allowing us to use the song The Battle of Blair Mountain, which she co-wrote with Mike Richardson and performs here, along with Anna Uptain's banjo and backup vocals. A link to Louise Mosery's website, spelled L-O-U-I-S-E-M-O-S-R-I-E dot com, is included in our show notes. Thank you very much, Louise and company, for a great song.